The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the afternoon session of the Multicultural Affairs Committee uh, luncheon. Um, So... This is Cheryl Cummings, and I'm going to turn this over in a few minutes to our facilitator for the afternoon, Reverend Michael Garrett. But I just want to say um, that I am so proud of the committee that put this together because uh, unlike, I'm sure you've heard a lot mentioned, the word critical race theory just sort of tossed around, and I'm sure you've heard that it's being used as a way to to erode rights and access to reading materials and access to history. Um, but I hope you, as you're here, that you're willing to listen and to learn what it really means. So with having said that, I'm going to uh, turn this over to Michael Garrett. Thank you, Cheryl, for that introduction. And welcome, everybody. You know, we entitled this session, uh, Critical Race Theory, a candid conversation about a critical concept, because we we believe it is uh, a very critical concept. So uh, Cheryl mentioned about uh, uh, basically what we really want to try to cover. Our goal today is that when you leave here, or when you dismiss this, walk away from this session, that you will have a better understanding of what critical race theory is. We, we also entitled it Critical Race Theory, what it is and what it isn't. And so we're, we're hoping to clear that up today. We want you to know, to know that critical race theory is not the big bad wolf, Critical race theory is not the elephant in the room. For instance, if you were to take each word in that phrase, critical race theory, and define each word by itself and put them back together again, we believe that you will find that it's not harmful. But this is a subject that we believe we need to talk about. We believe it, it, it is more harmful if we do not talk about it. So before, we, before I introduce our panel today, let me, just, let me just throw out one particular portion. Or, or, I mean, this, 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 this phrase has several different dynamics, but I want to just touch on it from a sociological uh, definition, which says it seeks to explore the social, political, and legal structures along with power distribution in America through the lens of race. So it's taking a, a sort of a myopic view of the phrase, but when you look at critical, critical can can be uh, not criticism, but it can be an important aspect of something. Race, meaning the difference of different racial groups and makeups, and theory is simply a theoretical viewpoint. So we have today which I believe is a great panel uh, of individuals who will deal with this subject uh, from different perspectives. Our panelists include Steve Mendelson, Pam Shaw, and Gabriel Lopez Cafati. Each brings a different perspective, both from from, uh, the racial aspect and from their professional experience. Steve is a a retired lawyer, so we get the legal aspect. 
Pam comes from a social background and and Gabriel in his position as 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 an academic advisor has a has a, a particularly interesting viewpoint so each of them will share their views on what critical race theory is and what it isn't and then after that we'll we'll and they will probably delve into some of these different terms that we have but we'll have some discussion on, on some very uh, important terms that relate to this subject. And um, we'll take a deep dive into those depending on the time. And then we'll have time for you, our audience, to have a question and answer session. So the first, our first panelist will be uh, Steve Mendelson. Thank you, Michael. And good afternoon, everyone. And thank you so much for being here. I want to begin by underscoring something that Michael said. Critical race theory is not the elephant in the room. Critical race theory is a window into the room. And through that window, we ask ourselves from a legal standpoint, the following questions. To what extent can existing or proposed laws be explained uh, by race? To what extent do the consequences and effects of laws vary by race? And how do we evaluate those consequences? And what is our response when those consequences emerge, uh, do we care? Does it matter if they're intentional, if they're unintended, if they are accidental? Uh, and what, if anything, do we want to do about them? These are all, or at least some of the major questions that we ask ourselves in a legal context when addressing the questions of uh, surrounding critical race theory. So let's begin with some examples. Uh, obviously, there are laws which make race very explicit as their subject matter and as the reason for their existence. Some of those are very, very bad laws, such as, for example, the invidious and notorious race laws of the early 20th century. Some of them are benign, or, uh, such as the civil rights laws that characterize our own era. Uh, and some of them are a little bit ambiguous in terms of the fact that uh, they have different uh, kinds of effects. We'll talk about some of those. Uh, for example, we think among the civil rights laws uh, of the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act, as you know, or as many of you know, was enacted uh, to deal with the problem of consistent historic racial discrimination by a number of states in particular uh, uh, against uh, uh, black and other minority voters. Uh, and that resulted, of course, in the decision in the 1965 to pass a law which would allow the federal government to have a particular degree of surveillance over voting law changes made by these certain states, particularly the states, particularly the states who had been in the Confederacy, uh, but not only those. Uh, and then, of course, that was reenacted. But subsequently, in 2011, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled that the provisions of the Voting Rights Act allowing uh, Department of Justice review of voting law changes passed by these jurisdictions, that those provisions were themselves unconstitutional. The reasons for that decision are complex, and I think, uh, to my mind, not persuasive. They were based upon partly on the belief of certain justices that since we had elected an African-American president, racial discrimination no longer existed in this country, and partly on the basis of a, of a very strange legal theory that I won't go into about how it was unfair to distinguish among states uh, in the way that that law did. So here's a law that was intended uh, to have what I think we would all agree is a positive effect in assuring voting rights to all that ended up being interpreted by the courts in a way uh, which resulted in not only in allowing, but arguably in encouraging uh, discriminatory activities of the kind that we have begun to see since that decision came down. All right. Now, what about laws which uh, have uh, a, a racial element, uh, but it's not ever made explicit? And I'm not talking here about implicit bias necessarily because I'm talking about laws where everybody knows that they're going to affect people differently based upon race, but nobody says so. Now, what's a good example of that? The Social Security Act. What is he, he talking about, you ask me? What does the Social Security Act have to do with race? I go to work, I earn income, I pay my Social Security tax. When I retire, I get my money. Not that simple. When the Social Security Act was first enacted in 1935, several occupational categories were excluded. Which ones? Agricultural workers and domestic workers. Why? Because those were the two occupational categories in this country that had the highest percentage of black people in them. 
Uh, and it was no accident they were excluded. It was very clearly understood by Congress and very clearly understood by President Roosevelt that if he wanted the Social Security Act adopted, he had to accept those exclusions and certain other minor features, which predictably and inevitably did result in a much lower level of benefits, or indeed, in many cases, an exclusion from benefits of people based upon race. So that is an example of a, of a law which has uh, arguably, you could say, implicit bias. But again, I would say it's not implicit bias because everybody understood it. Nobody said it. Uh, now, what about laws which actually have uh, even less of an explicit uh, awareness of or intentionality toward race in them? Uh, what about, for example, laws which vest huge amounts of discretion in the people who enforce and administer them? And really, all laws give discretion to somebody to do something. No law is self-enforcing. I can pass a law saying that uh, it's illegal to, uh, to uh, sell uh, Limburger cheese on Thursdays. Uh, and then what happens if it's, a, if it's 1 a.m. in New York on Friday and 10 p.m. in California still on Thursday and the cheese is sold in interstate commerce? Is it Thursday or is it Friday? Well, that's, I'm making a silly example, but to make a broader point, which is that every law has some degree of discretion, but some have more than others. For example, a notorious example of that would be the criminal justice system. There's tremendous discretion at many levels in the criminal justice system from the decision of the police as to what laws to enforce and in what communities and how to the decisions of prosecutors as to who to charge with crimes and at what levels to the decisions of juries as to who to convict and of what levels of offense to the decisions of judges as to what sentences to impose upon people who are convicted to the decisions of prison administrators uh, as to who to parole and who not to parole and when. Uh, history and social research tells us that in every one of these areas, there are major distinctions, major discrepancies between people uh, that can be understood in terms of race. You can't necessarily always find uh, examples in a particular case. You can't find the fingerprint of a racial consideration. But if you look systematically and statistically, demographically, you can. In fact, our own U.S. Supreme Court ruled uh, in the 1980s uh, that statistics that statistics could, could not be used to show racial discrimination in the administration of capital punishment. They said if you wanted to uh, get a capital punishment verdict overturned on the basis of racial animus in a particular case, you had to be able to prove in that particular case that race was a factor in the decision. Clearly, our law, if you could prove that, would, uh, would take appropriate action. But the decision to not allow statistical data to be used in a general way to determine whether or not the capital punishment system had any efficacy or, or, or was uh, influenced, and if so, to what degree by race, uh, that decision uh, is an important one and uh, was in some ways contrary to the assumptions underlying the civil rights laws in the area of employment discrimination, where, for example, statistical data was used uh, to a very great extent to show that who got advanced, who got hired, who didn't get hired, was affected by their race. And in fact, that the criteria used to determine who would get hired, who would get promoted, who would get fired, who would get disciplined, were heavily affected by race. You could tell this by the statistics. There was no other explanation in many of these cases for why the results were so variant. Uh, the greatest example of statistics in, in, in the legal system in history, so far as race is concerned, of course, is the decision of Brown versus Board of Education, the decision uh, reversing the uh, so-called separate but equal doctrine established by the Plessy versus Ferguson case of 1896, the decision paving the way for school integration in this country. And that decision was based to a large degree on the recognition that notwithstanding uh, that uh, uh, race might, might not be mentioned uh, in decisions by school officials as to how much to fund what schools, where to set up districts, who to send uh, children to, that uh, the, the statistics showed that in predominantly or exclusively black schools, the services, the level of education, the teacher training, the pay of teachers, and every other dimension uh, uh, showed stark differences based, again, uh, solely on race. All right. There, you can see that there are a lot of legal nuances to this whole subject, and mm -hmm. we haven't even touched the surface 
So we're, we're going to move forward and look at another aspect. And our next panelist is Ms. Pam Shaw. Acts of racism and violence have been part of American history since its founding. And tragically, they still exist in our present. Recent racist, the recent racist killing spree in Buffalo and other states, and it please include anti-Asian violence over the past few months, are just two recent reminders that racism is still po- is, is a potent force in our country, and we can't help to we can't help to heal from our past or extinguish racism from our present if we don't address the problem at its core. We need to be able to talk about this systematic racism um, in, in the hope that future generations will have the tools they need to overcome it. That's why the ongoing attacks on critical race theory are especially concerning. First, let's make sure that we're on the same page about what critical race theory is. To put it very simply, and I'll be using CRT, okay? CRT is the well-documented understanding that systemic racism exists at the very foundation of our country and continues to shape our lives today. To the detriment of black indigenous, Asian, Latino, and other people of color, and to the benefit of white people. Let's go back a while and remember the mass roundup of people of Japanese descent during World War II and the decades of laws and social persecution that preceded and followed that incarceration was terrible. That's all part of the bigger system of American racism. We can't fully understand these dark moments in American history unless we see them as part of a pattern that has played out over and over and over again. CRT was developed by Kimberly Crenshaw. She is a black civil rights advocate and scholar who also, interestingly enough, developed a theory of intersectionality. But the movement to block CRT is much broader than just trying to ban a theory. It targets the very underpinnings of anti-racist education. The people behind this anti-CRT movement want us to believe that talking about systemic racism is the problem, not the systemic racism itself, but we know that's not true. As historians and archivists who document a part of American history that was profoundly shaped by racism, we are painfully familiar with what what happens when this sort of bigotry goes unchecked. If we have any hope of learning from our past, we must, we must, we must talk about more of our country's racist history, not less. It's also important to note that the movement against CRT is rooted in anti-blackness. It was started it was started in direct opposition to the public outcry over the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020. According to research, interestingly enough, uh, it showed that the term systemic racism was used more times in the media after the murder of George Floyd than in the last 30 years combined. That made some people uncomfortable. Some who argue against this theory say that it's an aggressive neo-racist theology to fund a corrupt consultant class while maligning all white people. And some, some, some have even spearheaded a strategic campaign to eliminate anti-racist education and training from, believe it, from schools and government agencies across the, um, the country. Do you know that since 1921, 42 states have introduced bills to take 
and take other steps that would restrict teaching critical race theory or limit how teachers can discuss racism and even sexism. Now, 17 states have imported um, these, they implemented these bans and restrictions, though there are many, many legal challenges. Well, it seems that in some of the states, even racial, racial equity training and initiatives have been halted or threatened as a result of this backlash. In addition to anti-racial education being an essential component of, as we talked about that World War II incarceration history, um, we know that this still goes on, and some people argue that the mass incarceration of black males is that same type of thing, and some even argue that they feel that it is a theory. And also another theory that's coming up is called race replacement theory, and because that inspired the Buffalo Massacre. Plus, we all stand to gain from learning about structural inequity and finding ways to get past it. I think that there is benefit for everyone in addressing systemic racism. By having honest and courageous conversations about systemic racism, people of all backgrounds have come to a deeper, and I believe will come, to a deeper understanding of themselves their communities and have achieved better connection and gains towards a more just and inclusive society. So Reverend Garrett, that includes what I want to share at this point. Our, our next panelist is Gabriel Lopez Cafati, and we'll hear what he has to say on this subject. Gabriel. Well, uh, I, I grew up, uh, I also have a legal background, um, originally born and raised in Honduras in Central America. And uh, I know we adopted a universal principle in law that uh, when trying to explain the current situation of a country like is the United States, uh, we, we need to know where we come from if we want to know where we are and how to move forward. So one thing that is very important about understanding the laws that governed uh, this nation in which uh, racism was actually institutionalized um, back in the 17, I think it was 1740s and moving forward into laws that uh, declared that black people were only three-fifths human. Um, there were some laws that even said that uh, black people who were not born yet were actually falling under that same category and did not have the same rights as a white person and they would never be citizens of this country. So um, to understand how those laws impact the present, we have to understand that even though the, uh, there, was, there was so much progress and we moved past those laws, we, we still experience racism in a systematic way. So we have to wonder why. And critical race theory is a, a school of thought that is helping us understand why is it that after a monumental civil rights movement and civil rights legislation in the 1960s, we still today experience a huge disparity not only in the social economic construct of our country, but also political. And the way in which a critical race theory tries to make us uh, reflect on those aspects is by understanding that even though some laws uh, were outlawed or some uh, principles were replaced by more just, more equitable laws, like is the civil rights legislation, there is still a lot of the spirit of the original legislation living in our society and feeding the uh, thoughts of uh, many individuals. Um, we know that today we still have a huge disparity. Uh, I work for uh, an institution 
uh, Miami-Dade College, which is a uh, community college, basically. And uh, we serve a lot of, and, and this is, you know, just, just the word that I'm going to use to describe the work we do is indicative that there is still division, that there is still disparity. And the disparity tends to put uh, minorities in, a, in an unfavorable position because we refer to our community colleges as institutions that serve underserved populations. The word underserved in on itself can give you an idea of the kind of systemic racism that we live in. Because when you dissect that population, those underserved populations are always, um, number one, um, African-American, uh, and number two, at least in my population, uh, Latinos and Caribbeans. So the way in, in which we try to bring this to light through critical race theory is by understanding that even though many, if not all, the laws that used to institutionalize racism are gone, the spirit of those legislations still travel through generations and still travel through the, through the practices, social practices, political practices, economical practices. And then the disparity shows when it's time to apply laws or when it's time to determine which groups get what. And I like to point out also that before we move any forward, critical race theory does not require, and I emphasize does not require or imply by any means that anyone who is a part of the uh, white ethnicity or Anglo-Saxon ethnicity or Anglo-American should not feel sorry, should not feel uh, responsible in the sense, or uh, I'm sorry, in sense, should not feel guilty, but they should feel that they, as part of this great nation, we need to do much more than just legislation to change or just move to a different course in the history of our country. So this is actually uh, a great conversation to have because uh, maybe some other countries do not have this issue. But America, being such a diverse country, uh, we do need to have these conversations because our composition is so diverse. So in, in, in order for us to redirect ourselves and redirect the future of our country, and especially when we talk about younger generations, we need to teach them that the way in which we got here was bumpy. The way in which we got here was unfair, but critical race theory is not trying to emphasize that just to make people feel bad or guilty. Critical race theory is trying to bring that to light so, A, we can, we can avoid making those mistakes moving forward as we legislate or as we apply laws, that we become aware, just like the ADA. I always like to compare um, CRT with um, the, the disability rights movement because the ADA tries to level the playing field for those of us who are disabled. And critical race theory tries to bring this to light so that we can level the playing field for those communities, those minorities that have been underserved historically and systemically. And we can give them that push, that platform, so they can reach the actual ultimate goal that is protected by our funding documents, which is equality for all. Very good, very good, very good. Each of our panelists has touched on uh, some some terms that are, I, I think we, we should take a little bit deeper dive into. Uh, and uh, I was I was told when we did our preparation call, I was told by uh, by both Steve and, and Gabe, uh, you sure you, we got enough insurance to uh, 
to cover ourselves when we talk about some of these things. <laughs> but uh, I, w- I wanted to throw in here too. Uh, several several of us went on a tour while here in Omaha, and we visited the Malcolm X Museum. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that was said we were, that we're talking about the difference in the approach of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And both men were looking for the same result, but approaching it from a different angle. But the key was that Malcolm was crying for human rights and Martin was crying for civil rights. And so we were reminded that human rights has to come before we can get civil rights. So just sort of sort of keep that in mind as we as we delve into these this whole area. But there are a few a few terms that I want the the panel to to uh, deal with here. And uh uh uh, I believe it was Pam alluded to this, but but I think everybody kind of looked at it a little bit. The first one is a very touchy one. It's cancel culture. So who'd like to begin and, and address that one? Pam, they say it's on you. Well, I guess, Michael, I would have to ask you a question because cancel culture means so many things. And I'm not trying to get you to answer this, but I'm trying to get my brain around how you're thinking about it relating to this particular topic, because it has so many different definitions. Yes, it it does. From the standpoint that uh, some people define it as banning, boycotting, Removing, replacing—it's—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's, it's an organized, uh, organized ideas uh, and thoughts, or, or, or it's banning or, uh, organizations, thoughts, uh, traditions, uh, total bans, boycotting, from the standpoint of canceling people and their thoughts and ideas. What would, hmm. how, would you, how would you react to that? <laughs> Well, because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to put it in context, okay? Because some people use um, cancel culture and replacement theory in the same way. So when you get into certain types of situations, like what we saw in Buffalo was um, the person who was the shooter went after a particular group of people because his belief was that those people are, quote, unquote, replacing me that they are canceling me out. And, and and sometimes you hear it this way. You hear people say inaccurately, though, that um, certain jobs are being taken away from certain groups of people because of um, immigration. And so that's kind of the theory. Well, the theory itself is faulty. That's part of the problem. And so when you get into this replacement theory, A, it's negative. B, it speaks to a specific group of people. And C, it speaks to um, a type of economics that really doesn't exist. So it doesn't have the kind of grounding. And as you heard, one of the things we talked about in critical race theory is the ability to document. And so that's kind of, that's one way to think about it. But there are numerous other ways that we see cancel culture come up. So to me, it's very simple and probably I'm going to give a much shorter answer because to me, cancel culture um, is simply fear and um, uh, unjustified fear. And like uh, Pam said, um, undocumented fear, because there is no there are no numbers to prove that any one culture is trying to cancel another one or that uh, any one culture is replacing another one. Uh, I know many, in many cases, um, America was seen as a melting pot. Well, I particularly don't like the melting pot um, theory because I think in the melting pot, we all lose the identity that we have. 
I like the salad perspective where we all <laughs> are pieces. <laughs> so we're all pieces of, of, of the final product, but we all preserve our own identity. And the fact that we make such a delicious salad is because we keep our own flavors and we combine them together to make the final product. So those actually numbers are documented and we can see the progress that some of our communities achieve through accepting and embracing more than accepting. I like embracing the differences of the different cultures and ethnicities that form a community rather than canceling each other. Well said. One thing that makes it easier to talk about cancel culture is that there's nobody who's in favor of it. I've never heard of anyone who says they're in favor of cancel culture. The trouble is it's used uh, uh, as, a, as a weapon by people who want to accuse their enemies of doing it. Or it's used to stir up fear on the part of people who want their supporters, their followers, to do something based on the fear of it's being done to them. Uh, what it actually means, if it actually means anything at all, well, I don't know what cancel culture is, but I bristle and know that no good intention is exists on the part of anybody who uses the term. All right. That was good. That was good. All right. So I want to throw a word out, but I want to put this word in context. I want to, I, I don't want us to leave without looking at this. I probably should have saved this one for the, for last, but I want to do it right now because you, 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 you the panelists have mentioned words like fear, uh, replacement, uh, those kinds of things. And, and we've talked about this from history. And oftentimes people use things out of fear because they just don't know what is real. So when you look at this whole area of critical race theory and all of the aspects that it covers and the whole idea of systematic racism and all of those terms. What's the truth? What is the truth of the matter? Can you define what truth is in relation to what critical race theory is in the context of where we are in America today? I don't make it easy for them, do I? <laughs> I'd like to take a, a stab at that, if I may. Uh, the problem of, of truth is a twofold one. What empirical or observable data uh, or phenomena exist, and how do you explain them? The issue of truth, I think, uh, uh, arises more in connection with the explanation or with what the explanation would impel you to do than it does about the facts. No one disputes the fact that the life experience of people in this country is affected by their race, statistically, autobiographically, and otherwise. No one can seriously dispute that. Not the person on the furthest right, not the most progressive person on the furthest left. The issue of truth arises then when we come to the point of explaining that difference and asking ourselves what, if anything, we can or should do about it, what we're compelled by history or morality to do about it or not do about it, as the case may be. And that's where the rubber hits the road. And for me, I go back to the truth of kind of the documentation, what we are really seeing, okay? There is, and I, I'm going to put these two words together, there is reality that our country has a pattern of certain behaviors. Even um, the, the speaker, one of the speakers in the previous session, talking about Native Americans reminded us of this pattern of treating people a certain way based solely upon their race, the damage that it does. But here's the other part of the truth, is that by putting, uh, if you will, a, a light on it, shedding a light on it, so it can be seen, it gives us the unique opportunity to develop tools and to develop strategies so that we don't keep on with that same pattern decade after decade after decade. So I put the truth together with the reality of the situation. Then it was said, those options and opportunities that we have. 
Yeah. So I will go with um, uh, it's it's very difficult to talk about truth in a polarized uh, situation, and and we are as polarized as can be today. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go to numbers because numbers don't lie, and uh, I think we can find truth in numbers. And um, like Pam said, the reality of what we live today. Uh, you know, the, the, the statistics are there. The numbers are there. Uh, you know, I, let, let me focus on the black American population. Um, it, it's well known and well documented and, and very, very statistically proven that African-Americans have less access to higher education, less access to health care, less access to jobs that are better paying. And on the other side of the coin, they are less, they're not treated equally when it comes to um, justice and uh, those uh, in charge of applying uh, law or law enforcement uh, agents. So that is well documented with numbers. And the truth in, in this case, to me, will be to try to understand what are the parameters that we as a society, uh, leaving legislation aside, what are the parameters that we as a society are setting and how we are creating and actually feeding that disparity by saying that certain, uh, you have to have certain racial or ethnic traits to have certain things that are, that are seen as successful, uh, drive a certain type of vehicle, have a position as a CEO, live in a certain part of town. All those numbers are also, uh, on the other side of the balance, increasing or marking the disparity even further. Very good. Very, very good. I want to throw another one out here. Oh, well, let me say this. I just want to emphasize this whole thing about truth. Uh, truth, uh, you guys hit it just where I wanted it in terms of talking about reality. Truth is an absolute standard, the absolute standard by which reality is measured. That's, that's uh, one, the definition I like to use in terms of truth. It's fact. Facts. Don't lie. And, and truth. And, you know, you know, we have this, this thing now where some people say my truth or your truth or your truth is not my truth. You, you have a certain reality because things happen to you in your particular experience. But truth is a standard by which all reality is measured. So, so there is the truth. All right, so so I'm gonna, I'm not gonna make it easier on you guys either. So one <laughs> one one more, at least one more, and then we'll open it up for 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 questions. Um, do you believe <laughs> that there is suppression in our society today? It's it's pretty much uh, uh, obvious that anybody with any strong opinion on someone who believes that people with an opposite opinion shouldn't be allowed to speak because they're fools or knaves. That being so, the issue of suppression comes down to the question of power. Because people with power have more of an opportunity, more of an ability to enforce their will in that regard on others than people without power. So you ask yourself the question, who has power and what are their opinions and who doesn't have power and what are their opinions and what would their opinions be if they had an equal opportunity to express them, equal access to the media, equal wealth to disseminate their views? You ask yourself those questions, and you sort of know the answer. I, I think about um, suppression in the, to the extent that it's everywhere. And I find it hard to separate it from oppression and repression. Okay, so um, because when I think about suppression, I think about, particularly for this discussion, a systemic way 
of keeping the truth from coming out or being revealed. So as as Steve said, you can do it in several ways. It can be through the media. It can be through certain behaviors. It even can be through the allocation of resources. So absolutely it's there, and that's part of the challenge with systemic racism. So absolutely, yes, there is suppression. Uh, there is suppression at, at different levels. Um I know uh, we tend to focus on the big picture sometimes and we try to either thank everything or blame everything to the federal government. But locally, we are experiencing a number of states in which uh, suppression in terms of voting rights is being handled in a very, and I'm going to use an ugly word, but it's the only word that I can think of, in a very sneaky way. So the difference between <laughs> the difference between those uh, that kind of suppression it, it and, and the suppression that minorities had decades or centuries ago is that and i'm not justifying by any means the suppression that we lived uh, before this country came to 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 the modern times but the suppression back in history was very very in your face <laughs> they would they were not hiding that it was suppression they were calling a spade a spade now they're trying to hide suppression with different legislations that are not uh th that are not intended or that are trying to be disguised as something else and i don't know which one is worse now on a more uh i guess a civil society there is suppression in terms of People, you know, targeting certain groups uh, in terms of violence, uh, mass shootings against targeted groups. And even though that is not in on itself suppression, it does suppress um, our freedom and our ability and our peace of mind. If, you know, if we want to go to congregate at a certain church where we know that is predominantly Latino or predominantly black, or if we go to a certain part of town that is predominantly certain race or ethnicity, we are afraid that, you know, someone is, is going to commit one of those, of these horrendous actions. So by, by not attacking those kind of criminal activities against targeted minorities, we are allowing suppression to continue. I want to throw this, this other one in. Because I think this will this will help us try to put things in context. So what does democracy look like? What does democracy look like? What should democracy look like? What should democracy look like? Well, in theory, and that's what we're talking about here, I guess, democracy should look like a system where Everyone has equal means to express their opinion and where the opinions of the majority uh, become the law or the practice subject to protection of certain basic and inalienable rights of the minority. And now that said, uh, the problems immediately begin right at the outset. First of all, do people make their decisions based on full information? If not, who controls the information that they get? Do people have a way of unearthing their own emotional reactions to situations uh, and to uh, sort of neutralizing them in their decisions. So they have the opportunity, are they encouraged by the system, uh, by their leaders, by their media, uh, by the culture in which they live in, to think rationally and objectively, or are they encouraged to respond emotionally with fear, with anger? Uh, our democracy today is in terrible trouble because there's no one, frankly, who is encouraging or in a position to to uh, uh, encourage to a great degree the kind of uh, objective analysis that we need and that I believe and I think most of us believe would lead to the kind of a society that we want, that we feel would be better, more democratic, more egalitarian. But the, the increasing concentration of power in this country is making that less and less possible and the increasing uh, movement of, of our culture away from rational discourse It's making that more and more difficult. And I think we have all great reason to fear for our future unless 
some fundamental temperamental changes occur and some traditional values uh, of the kind uh, that I'm describing and that I think we all share are somehow reinforced by a system and a culture which today has no means of reinforcing them. And, it, and it's interesting because um, and th- the reason I sort of picked on Steve because my mind immediately went to things like the Declaration of Independence and and the Constitution. And in terms of um, when you think about what this democracy looked like, you think about the laws that support what we do. And I think about the other thing that democracy looks like is a series of rights, um, which are all being challenged these days. Uh, things like um, freedom of speech the right to bear arms. Um, there's all kinds of things. There's reproductive rights. What are the rights that people have? But one thing I do think about when I think about the democracy, that it still should be government. How do they say it, Steve? For the people, by the people? You, you know what I'm talking about, okay? And it should be a kind of we the people type experience as opposed to, that, that reflects who we are different than who we're being forced to be. So uh, democracy, a pure democracy, like the one we, we try to uh, replicate from uh, Greece, the ancient Greece, we cannot have that anymore because of numbers, because a true democracy is where we, we would have a referendum for everything. <laughs> However, the way in which we should practice democracy is that the voice of the majority should be represented because we, we live in a representative democracy. So we elect officials to work on our behalf and to work towards the goals of the majority. The road to a true democracy in our country today should start by re-examining and re-evaluating the role of the Electoral College. Of the Electoral College? I just want to make sure I heard that right. Okay. All right. So if we talk about democracy in terms of majority, then what happens when the majority isn't right? Because at one time in this country, the majority believed that slavery was a reasonable institution. So what happens when the majority isn't right? Okay, so great question, Pam. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, it gets more complex because I do believe um, a great book uh, that uh, I, I guess everyone in law definitely reads. Uh, and if you haven't read it, I recommend reading to understand more of the, the political construct of mm-hmm. our, of our modern society is the social contract by Rousseau, because the social contract actually implies that we give a piece of our freedom to a government, in this case, the federal government mm-hmm. to regulate, because we need parameters, uh, I know what you say, Pam, about the majority being sometimes uh, on, on, on the wrong side of history. But on the other hand, I'm going to counter back with, with not, a, not, a, not a question, Pam, but more of a reflection. I've been reading a lot lately, uh, uh, everything on topics like um, sensible gun reform, reproductive rights, uh, LGBTQ rights. And statistically, it, it is proven that the majority of Americans are in favor of respecting those rights and are in favor of having uh, a more egalitarian treatment for everyone in terms of minorities and uh, other, just in terms of the population, making, making things more equal for everyone. However, there is a small percentage, like Steve th- said, those in power uh, or those who have more economic power that are pulling the direction of our country to benefit their own agendas. Why is it that our democracy is not strong enough to 
counterbalance and counterattack the minority that is controlling our country. So my my reflection or my answer to you, Pam, is that the social contract that we have uh, is a federal government that will make sure that certain inalienable rights are respected, that human rights are respected. And if in the past we did not we were not able to honor that. That is why we are here together today talking about critical race theory to make sure that we do not make those mistakes again. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So are there any questions? I just, I wanted to come back to this, the, the question of truth or the issue of truth as uh you all said truth is pretty easy to establish with facts and, you know, critical race theory is all about, again, trying to continue to establish the truth and to let people know the truth. But what happens or how do we, how do we counteract when people are afraid of the truth, which is why of course there's so much resistance to critical race theory and people who, even when the truth is out there, when it's dead obvious, Fear absolutely can override fear or defensiveness can override, you know, seeing the truth and acknowledging the truth. And if you have enough people that are that are letting fear and defensiveness prevent them or making them unwilling to acknowledge truth and then to act according to truth, what can we do? Is there anything we can do to to help that, to to get people to be less afraid and less offensive and not be afraid of the truth, but willing to acknowledge the truth and move on. Well, one thing I would say, Sarah, is that we do what we are doing today because we are creating the opportunity for people to be able to listen, to hear, and to learn. There's always going to be that, um, that segment um, that will not accept it. You know, they just will not accept it. And I'm not a fan of force-feeding either, but I am a fan of putting it out there, letting people see it, and talking about it. Because that's part of the problem. Even when we call ourselves talking about certain things, even like critical race theory, it's so easy to get off the topic that we don't get to the core of the matter. So I think it starts with um, having these opportunities. And you hit on something else because that's part of the reason by proponents of critical, why proponents of critical race theory want it taught want it taught in a learning environment, in a healthy way, um, So, and, and also in government agencies as well, going back to a lot of what Gabe was talking about. So I think we just keep on. We just keep on doing what we're doing. Uh, the problem of fear uh, is obviously a critical one. Two most powerful human motivations are fear and greed. Well, we have a political system which is now based largely upon the systematic manipulation and the stoking of fear. The problem is this, ultimately is this, though. When you get down to the question of truth, again, I think I can get most people to accept that many of our laws, most of our laws, uh, adversely affect minorities and people of color, uh, certainly as they do people with disabilities, who many of us in this room and on this call can well understand. Uh, I think nobody is going to dispute that. The question of truth arises on the level of what to do about it. And even beyond that, The question of truth hinges upon what we can do to make people care. Because the people who benefit from the existing arrangements of society are not necessarily going to care about the harm that those arrangements do to others or about the inequality and disadvantage and pain that those arrangements inflict upon others. We're tribal tribal to some degree in our nature. So what we all have to do is try to find some way to encourage the transcendence of tribalism in favor of a more universalist understanding of human pain and human potential and human opportunity. And frankly, I don't know how to do that. I can try every day, as I hope I do, and I know all most of us do, to do it within myself on a personal level. But what does that good do institutionally or politically or systemically? I don't have a good answer to that. I wish I did. I'll say something really quick. Um, definitely what we do with the truth, like Pam said, is doing what we're doing here talking about it 
putting it out in the air and um, also speak up when you feel that you're seeing or witnessing something, even if it doesn't, if you feel it doesn't affect you directly, speak up. And my best um, advice to, to handle the truth and to do what you need to do with the truth is vote wisely. Oh, wow. What a wonderful afternoon. Commend all of you for, for bringing this uh, to ACB. And I, I really like what uh, was said by Gabriel about being showing up and stating your presence whenever you hear a falsehood or a mistruth or a statement that you know could be injurious to another person. I wanted to also say that um, I had hoped that this discussion might also uh, find its way into the area of fear that has been established as some states are talking about removing books from the libraries and things of that nature. Because, you know, we have a lot of parents in, in ACB. And a lot of them will be seeing their children go back to school in August and September. And some of these uh, issues will be on their plate when they have to, perhaps as a parent organized group, say to the administration, I, I don't feel that you should, should uh, monitor the books the way you have, that I, I, I want my children to be well-rounded, et cetera. I, and I'll, I'll say, it, say that. When I was in junior high, high school rather, a teacher who was Caucasian gave me the rebellion of Nat Turner. Okay, next we have Glenda Bourne. I just want to just commend how eloquently you all have presented things that I've been thinking in terms of our federal government, because I think the downfall of this country is going to be is going to be greed, and it's going to be fear and greed. Where do you get objective news anymore? Where do you get objective information? I read a lot, and I read, you know, I've read a number of, of books and so on. And so to be informed, we people need to, first of all, get out and vote. Well, they need to be informed, but where are they going to get that kind of objective information? Because it's so subjective now. There are sources of information, um, census, and there are credible sources of information. And I wish more people, Glenda, would, uh, would be curious to know and learn where to fi find verifiable information. And like you say, vote after you are informed. Vote your values, not your fears. Mm. And I also think that even when you hear of situations, even before the voting, get involved. Okay, get involved. Be out there. State it. Put it out there. Ask questions. Do what you need to do as part of the voting process. Yeah, there are, there are a number of news sources that always look for the truth. The one that, that that's the way I look for it. Always look for the truth. You know what's true. You you say things that when things are 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 happening, and they and and the, the facts come out, you know that. And those are the news sources you can trust. Yeah, Linda Correll. All right, I have three points. I'll try to make them quickly. Uh, disinformation and misinformation is that they fever pitch, and those folks have a huge megaphone. We are going to have to struggle very hard and very energetically to counter it with the truth. We can talk about how we have access to the truth and we all believe in the truth. But there's people out there whose whole goal is to confuse and frighten the population. And we have to fight that. Point number one. Mm -hmm. Point number two, democracy. Statehood for, for uh, Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands if they want it. We can't go on with a Senate that has Wyoming with two senators, 
and California with two senators with a huge disparity of population. That is not majority rule. And that was set up at the founding to favor the southern states. So that's point number two. And point number three is I think we have to try to convince folks who don't share our perspective and feel frightened and um, put upon by critical race theory or any other concepts that they're being lied to about, that we love America, but we can love it and still recognize its faults and its shortcomings and know that its goals are still aspirational. And I want to be able to make sure that folks on the other side understand that and don't believe um, the disinformation they're getting. So that's oh, what I have. All right. Love it. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, okay. So we want to thank everybody for coming and joining us. This is, uh, I think we opened up a discussion that's still open. And stay tuned for MCAC. We will probably continue this discussion in, in a later in later times. Thank you again for coming. Thank you to my, the panelists. You did a great job. <laughs>